Let's read together from the Word of God as we turn to the book of Acts. We're reading in Acts chapter 17. We're breaking into Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, He has been evangelizing Macedonia, the north of Greece, uh, Thessalonica, beginning of chapter 17, uh, Berea. And the Lord has been granting conversions and the planting of churches in these cities. Uh, Now when we uh, begin uh, our reading at verse 16, Paul has reached Athens, great cultural capital uh, of the ancient world. While Paul was waiting for them, that's for the the rest of the, the mission team, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There are some things in the Bible that people are happy to hear about, or at least they're not offended by them. If perhaps we talk about loving our neighbour, yes, people generally will say, yes, that's a, that's a good thing. They don't mind uh, being told about that. We talk about the need to care for the weak and the vulnerable. Or perhaps we talk about the possibility of a, a new start in life. And yes, people may be open uh, to listening to these things. Or at least the barriers don't immediately come up when Christians speak of those parts uh, of Christian teaching. Of course, perhaps as people learn a bit more uh, about what the Bible actually says on some of these subjects, we might find that that initial impression might change and people's openness might disappear very quickly when they understand the, the real content of the Bible. But on some matters, they're not immediately hostile, and you might be able to get a hearing if you speak of these things. However, there are other things in the Bible that many people find deeply offensive, things that they will react strongly against, things that don't fit their way of thinking, don't fit what is popular in the culture around us. And when we speak of them, then the barriers do come up very quickly. And we may pass, as we do sometimes find in our work, we may pass from indifference to outright hostility. When we speak of sin, that's not a popular subject, unless it's the sins maybe uh, that others commit but we start to speak perhaps of the sins of each individual, then the resistance begins to rise. Or when we speak of the need of a saviour, and perhaps we get the reaction, well, are you telling me I'm not good enough? Are you telling me I have to change my religion? What right have you to do that? I'm all right as I am. Find times, particularly when we've been distributing tracts in the street, the reaction of people rushing past often if they don't swerve around you, well they'll go past and the reaction is, I'm all right. I just want to say, actually no, you're probably not. I haven't said that, but that's the reaction, I'm all right, I don't need what you're offering. And we do find increasingly indifference is passing into hostility to the things of the gospel. And surely one of the subjects that people will react against is the whole idea of a day of judgment. To many, what a primitive idea. 
people nowadays in sophisticated 21st century talking about believing in a day of judgment. What a barbaric idea. An angry God punishing people. What an incredible concept. And the idea of a day of judgment is one that to many is unthinkable. Now they may in their heart of hearts have an awareness that somehow they're accountable for what they do. God's built that into us. But to be told directly that God will call them to account at a particular time, a particular day, then they really don't want to hear. The problem is, of course, that it's there in Scripture. Indeed, it runs all the way through the Scriptures. We can't pick it out and leave the bits in the Bible that we like. The reality of a day of judgment is part of the gospel. It is something that the apostles themselves proclaimed as they went out into the world, commissioned by the Lord Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. One of the things they spoke about unashamedly was a day of judgment. I want to turn our thoughts for a time this morning to the words we find in the lips of Paul the Apostle preaching in Athens in Acts 17. It's verse 31 uh, that we want to focus on. Acts 17, 31, for he, that's God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. We're thinking of the day of judgment set. That's what Paul proclaims to these listeners in the the Areopagus. It was a gathering of the thinkers and the philosophers and the wise men, so-called, of Athens. And they would sit around and chat and toss ideas to and fro. Uh, And that's what occupied them. They had the women and the slaves at home to do the housework and cultivate the fields. And they could sit and discuss ideas. The day of judgment set. First thing we see in this verse is God exists. God exists. Maybe that seems obvious, but is it? Notice that Paul was in Athens. Now, Athens had gone beyond its real glory days as an intellectual center. Uh, It was gradually declining uh, in the first century AD, but it was still uh, a significant center of culture and of thought. But you notice the response uh, of Paul to Athens. He's there for the first time. How does he react? Well, we're told uh, in verse 16, he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. That was characteristic of Athens as of any uh, Greek town or city of the day. All kinds of altar sanctuaries, places of sacrifice, and so on. All the various uh, deities 
of the Greeks. They even had, interestingly, as we're told in verse 23, an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That may seem a strange thing to have. But it was a kind of insurance policy that the Greeks of Athens had established just in case they had missed out a god. And you didn't want to do that. They could get very awkward and angry if you missed them out and didn't worship them. Well, just in case they hadn't thought of one of the gods, here is an altar to the rest. So, in a sense, no god could say, look, you didn't worship me. They could say, ah, well, look, there's the altar. Hasn't got your name on it, but that was for you. So, You can't strike us down with thunderbolts or whatever. And so they thought they'd covered themselves from every possible angle. This is the altar that fills in any gaps in their devotion and their worship. Full of idols. And of course it burdened the heart of the Apostle Paul. He understands fully that the idols are not real gods. They don't have a real existence. Paul was steeped in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament often depicts the the, the folly of making idols and worshipping them. In Isaiah 44, uh, for example... There's a very graphic description of how someone could cut down a tree and he could use part of it to light a fire to keep himself warm and with part of it he'd make a god and he'd worship it. He'd burn part of the wood to keep himself warm and he'd worship part of it. What an utterly ridiculous religion. What a ridiculous idea. The gods could do nothing. That's the one thing above all uh, that the scriptures stress. These gods can do nothing. Indeed, you've got to prop them up carefully so that they don't fall over. What an amazing object of worship. A god that might fall over if you don't stick a wedge underneath them. Worthy of worship and service, scarcely. That was just part of the whole mindset of the Apostle Paul. And he understood uh, the emptiness of the idols. We've sung of that uh, already there in uh, Psalm 115. But Paul also knows that despite all the, uh, the useless idols... There is nevertheless a God. Just because there are all these false examples who are not really gods, we're not to conclude, well then, there's no God at all. Because Paul understands that there is the God he knows and loves and serves. Paul would know well Isaiah 45 
and verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Now, Paul doesn't come among these thinkers and philosophers offering abstract philosophical proofs of God's existence. Now, he could have done that. And there is a place in intellectual debate for presenting arguments for the existence of God. But that's not what these people need in Athens. They don't need more argument and debate. They have that from morning till night. Paul simply comes to present the living God, the God who exists. As he says, verse 23, what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. He's not suggesting that without knowing it, they worship the true God. Certainly not. Paul is going to proclaim the one living, true God. He really, he preaches to them. He doesn't engage in an intellectual game, which is what most of the debate in the Areopagus amounted to. What a lot of discussion about religion today amounts to, it's an intellectual game. Tossing ideas back and forward. People often trying to show how clever they are. Paul simply presents the truth. God exists. But he goes on from that then in the second place to show that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I mean, God exists fine and well, but what kind of a God is he? We've got to be able to say more about him than simply that he exists. And Paul says he has set a day when he will judge the world. Do you notice Paul is not using the language of possibility, probability, God may judge the world, God probably will judge the world. He simply says this God who exists, has set a day when he will judge the world. It's a statement of fact. There is no possibility that it will happen otherwise. God is sovereign. He has set. And it is the action of a sovereign God who does precisely what he wills. And that is so much a part of what the Old Testament says about the true God. The contrast that's drawn between the idols of the nations and the true God is in terms of what they do or what they don't do. That's why we sang Psalm 115 and the helpless idols They have mouths, they can't speak, and so on. They might look impressive, but they're useless. The contrast, verse 3 of Psalm 115, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He does. That's the point. The true living God does. 
and all the idols, gold, silver, stone, or intellectual idols in our minds, they don't do anything. Only the true God does. He acts. He does what he wills. And it's not only in the Old Testament, of course. It's just as much a part of God's revelation about himself in the New Testament. We could multiply the verses. We could quote over and over from the New Testament scriptures. Just take one example, Ephesians 1 and verse 11. There Paul refers to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out everything. And Paul leaves no exceptions. God does not work out some things, most things, the majority of things. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God's holy decree governs all things. Now, we may have sovereigns in this world, or rulers, or presidents, or prime ministers, whoever. And they may will many things. They may decree many things. But often they don't have the power to deliver. But God has the power to deliver precisely what he wills in every detail. There is no shortfall between God's will and what takes place. For us often there is. We may will, desire, plan many things that never happen or happen in an entirely different way. But God is utterly different. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And so this sovereign God, Paul says to the Athenians, has set a day. He determines it. It's in, if you like, God's calendar. It's marked in. He knows precisely when it will come. It won't be a moment early and it won't be a moment late. It will come exactly as he decrees. It will not be changed. How often do we make appointments and we score them out, we delete them, you have to enter them at another time. Something changed, something unforeseen. Nothing is unforeseen to God. The date will not be changed. Nobody can prevent its coming. Nobody can reschedule it. And so that day is a fact. It's a fact that every man and woman, every one of us here today has to reckon with. This is a day that's coming. And you'll be there. And you have to prepare for it. You're a fool if you don't. Talk about preparing ahead for what might happen. Here's something that will happen. And for this day to be coming, and for you to have made no preparation for it, is folly. Folly multiplied. The day of accounting is marked in God's calendar. 
You'll be there. You need to prepare. God is sovereign. God exists. God is sovereign. He has set a day. But what about that day? It leads us thirdly to think of the fact that God judges. God judges. He has set a day when he will judge the world. That is the purpose of the day that God has set. He will judge the world. Now, the gods of the Greeks were very like human beings. If you know anything at all about Greek mythology, and you probably picked up at least a little bit of it in school or elsewhere. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that the gods were very like human beings. They had all the foibles, all the feelings of human beings. They're a bit really like human beings writ large, and their feelings were writ large. They had all kinds of illicit relationships, all kinds of rivalries and hatreds and so forth. The gods of the Greeks were very like human beings, immoral, jealous, and so forth. You look at the gods of the Greeks and you think, I, I know people like that. And maybe that made the Greeks more comfortable with the gods. They weren't too different or too demanding. As long as you kept them happy, really, that was the essence of Greek religion. As it is of so many false religions, keep the gods happy and you'll be all right. Now, many of the philosophers uh, in Paul's audience there in Athens wouldn't have believed literally in the existence of Zeus and so forth. They were too sophisticated for that. The Stoics and the, uh, the Epicureans. Uh, and they would have had theories of why gods like that were okay for, for ordinary, common, uneducated people. Their views were more sophisticated. And the likes of Epicureans and Stoics would have said, well, if there are gods like that somewhere, it really doesn't matter because they've nothing to do with life here on earth. But whatever their philosophies were, in the end, none of them made people subject to some higher moral judge. So whether it was popular belief in the gods of the Greeks or whether it was the philosophies of Stoics or Epicureans or whoever, none of these religions or philosophies made people accountable before a higher moral judge. And so as long as you kept the gods happy, offered your sacrifices and so on, you could live pretty much as you liked. Don't offend them, you'd be okay. Paul proclaims a completely different God. Paul proclaims a God who is perfectly holy, a God who is not like us. Complete contrast to the Greek deities. 
A personal God, unlike whatever powers the the Stoics and Epicureans believed in, a personal God who is separate from all imperfection, from everything that's contrary to his nature. That's the basic idea of holiness. It's separation. And the God that Paul proclaims is the God who's separate from everything uh, that is created, that is imperfect, that is limited. He is holy in that sense. And he is also holy in the moral sense. He is separate from everything that is unclean, unrighteous, contrary to his perfect nature. And so you read, for example, in the prophet Habakkuk, Chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. That is a holy God. There is no evil in him. He is a holy God. In complete contrast to all the gods and powers or whatever that the Greeks believed in. God is holy. And God is also the standard of holiness. Everybody, every one of us will be measured against his perfection. We'll be measured against his holiness. And we're warned very clearly, Romans 3.23 for example, that we fall short of his glory. When we are measured beside the holiness of God, we fall short. There is not one of us who begins to meet that standard. Far from a God who's quite like us, here's a God who is completely different. A holy God and a God who will measure us by this perfect standard of his holiness. People often console themselves, well, you know, I'm not doing this or that. I'm not a murderer, I'm not a pedophile, I am not whatever. They have a little list of the things they're not and they console themselves. I'm not too bad, I'm certainly not as bad as some of those people. And yet the scriptures tell us clearly one sin constitutes you a sinner. As one crack renders a pane of glass broken, one sin renders you a sinner. And so the standard of God is his perfect holiness and we fall short because the greatest sin of which we are all guilty is living our lives without reference to this God. That's the greatest sin, and there isn't one of us who can say, I'm not guilty of doing that. It's the very essence of sin. It's to live with no regard for the true God. We fall short of his glory. And so the test of that day, when God will judge the world, is a test that none of us can pass.
if we stand there on that day before this God, as we've lived and died, we will fail the test. And if we take that seriously, that's a fearful prospect. As we reckon with the day that is coming and is surely coming, It is something that we should be deeply concerned about, something we should be fearful of, to stand before a holy God as a sinner and be judged by his perfect holiness. If that doesn't strike fear into our hearts, we haven't really understood it. That's the reality that lies ahead of every human being who has ever lived. God judges. He has set a day when he will judge the world. Every person, every one of us here will be there that day. And we will be standing before a holy God whose standard is perfection. And we will not meet it. We'll not begin to meet it. God judges. God exists. God is sovereign. God judges. And finally, God appoints. God appoints. As he speaks of this day when God will judge the world, Paul goes on to tell us who the judge will be. He will judge the world Paul says, with justice by the man he has appointed. And who is that? Well, we're not left in any possible doubt about the identity of the judge. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And of course, we are being told that the judge on that day will be the Lord Jesus Christ the one who was crucified and who is risen, he will be the judge. And perhaps some, again, react against that. What about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gentle Jesus who loves everybody, gentle Jesus who accepts everybody? And then we're told he will be the judge on that day of judgment. We're not for a moment denying the gentleness and the love of the Lord Jesus, but we also have to reckon with the fact as the Son of God, he will be the judge. He will judge the world with justice. That's a court that will make no mistakes. We're accustomed to hearing, aren't we, at times about courts where there's been a miscarriage of justice, where there was evidence that wasn't presented, where something skewed the verdict so that eventually there's a retrial and a different verdict is reached. There'd be no miscarriages of justice at the day of judgment. Each will receive precisely what is appropriate. This is the God, as we're told in Psalm 7, who searches hearts and minds. And if we appear at the day of judgment as we are by nature, as sinners, as people who want to live without God, there's no hope for us. No hope at all. No possibility of passing the test. 
And if we left it at that, that would be a recipe for despair. If there's no hope in us, well, what can we do? But the reference to the resurrection with regard to Jesus offers the hope that we need. Who is the judge? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who has died and risen again. Why was he raised from the dead? Because he died. Why did he die? And the New Testament tells us clearly. He died to pay the price for the sins of every sinner who looked to him and trust in him for salvation. So when Paul speaks of Jesus raised from the dead, we're reminded why he was raised. It's because he died. It's because he had done what's needed to save sinners. And he rose in triumph, having accomplished the work he had been given. 1 Peter 3.18, just one of the the great gospel text for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He took the punishment for all those who put their trust in him, who give up the idea of somehow trying to be good enough, somehow trying to pass God's test and realize I can't do it. But to trust in Christ means my sins are dealt with. They're forgiven. Jesus has paid the penalty. And so at the day of judgment, the penalty won't be extracted a second time. A sinner who trusts in Christ will not be repunished for his sins. Because Christ has already been punished. That's why the gospel is good news. It's about what God has done to save sinners like us. And so to speak of Christ risen reminds us of Christ crucified, the one who died to provide salvation for sinners. And there's the hope. There's the hope for you and for me as we face the prospect of that day God has set. You do not need to fear it if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior. If you're trusting in Christ, your sins are forgiven. The burden's lifted, it's taken away. He's done all that's needed to save you. And you'll be able to stand before a holy God. Not in your sins, but as the Bible describes it, dressed in the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection of Jesus. And so you won't need to be afraid. And so there is hope. To be told that God has set a day when he'll judge the world, if we stop there, we should despair. There's no hope in us. And there are multitudes of people who will be standing there just like that, with no hope. But if you're trusting in Christ, crucified and risen, if you're looking to him as your saviour, then you don't need to be afraid. You're saved. 
and you'll spend eternity with the Lord. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that Paul was holding out whenever he preached in Athens or anywhere else. It's in Christ. We will be there, every one of us on that day. Make no mistake. Make sure you're ready. You're prepared. And the only way you can be prepared, trusting in Christ, crucified and risen, the only Saviour.